we wish you welcome. Also, our listeners, we wish you welcome also. And praying that the Lord of peace himself, Jesus Christ himself, will give you his peace, no matter what today is like, no matter what today is going to be like, that his peace is with you in your hearts, in your mind, in your souls, and thank him for it. Let us go to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, the first verse. And it starts by saying, At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus. What same time? This refers to the incident of the temple tax and the fish with the coin in its mouth of chapter 17. And also Peter, James, and John had been with the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration, and it is just possible that with all that happened there, that it got the heads of the disciples a bit turned. Anyway, they began to argue with each other who really was the greatest among them all. Verse 1. At the same time, temple tax time, came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And scripture tells that the disciples had got together. The Greek word for this here is sustrefo, to gather together. They had got together, chapter 17, verse 21. It was in the home that the Lord had established for them and for himself in Capernaum. It tells us so in Matthew 7, verse 24, and also in Mark 9, verse 33. And they started debating, as we read in verse 1, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Whereupon H.A. Ironside writes in expository notes on the Gospel of Matthew, he writes, It is a question that no truly noble soul would ever ask. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Mark 9 verse 33 records that the Lord saw that something was going on and he asked, what was it that you disputed among yourselves, by the way? What were you discussing out on the road? And they didn't seem to have answered right away, as we read in Mark 9, verse 34, from the Living Bible. They were ashamed to answer, for they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. King James Version says, but they held their peace. For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. Stark Bielebeck, in commentary, Psalm 9 Testament writes that three factors determined who would be the first. Righteousness, knowledge of the law, and dying for the faith. And that the disciples were concerned about such matters tells that they were still looking for a politically based 
messianic kingdom and not for the kingdom of God that would be established through suffering and death. As the Lord tells his disciples, as recorded in Mark, Matthew, sorry, Matthew 17, verse 22, the Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men. Let's go to verse 2. And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them. So here we have a true show and tell lesson. Mark also records that the Lord hugged the child, touched the child. Mark 9 verse 36, and he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, that's what the Lord did, took the child in his arms. So was it that the Lord put the innocence of the little child over against the need of the disciples who wanted to be important? Children of the kingdom of God, they are children. And they are not to be striving for power or control or position. But for all the world, it looks that the disciples had been wondering about their status and position in the kingdom, in the coming kingdom, the kingdom they were anticipating as an earthly kingdom where the Lord would be the king and they would be his honored attendants and perhaps they may not have wanted to know who was the most honored among them, but maybe that some might have a bit more privileges or superiority than the other. Because hadn't the Lord singled out John, Peter, and James for special honor on the Mount of Transfiguration? And what would be the position of each disciple be? But in so many words, the Lord was telling them that they were asking the wrong question. Verse 3, and he said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. You won't even get there. They should have asked, looking at this verse, verse 3, they should have asked, how can I best serve my Lord rather than who's the most important, insinuating, and what about me? Picture, look at the child in the arms of the Lord, a picture of, of loving trust. The child coming to the Lord and comfortably at rest in the arms of the Lord, only wanting to be loved, unassuming, and humble. John F. Walford in Matthew, Thy Kingdom Come, a commentary on the first gospel, writes, 
true greatness involved taking an attitude of unpretentious humility instead of seeking a position of power. And these seem to be great lessons for the disciples to learn. The Lord set the child's innocence and humility over against the disciples' want or need for power and prestige and status. Subjects, subjects in the kingdom of God are to be like little children and not striving for power and position. See in verse 3, the Lord started his answer to the disciples with a most forceful and strong, verily I say unto you. To enter the kingdom, the disciples had to become as little children. Uh, the verb from the Greek strepho that's used here is to change. Is to is saying I am converted, change my direction, to turn, and is translated here to be converted. As used in the King James version, is practically the same as the verb metanoeo, which is also Greek, which is a more often used word for repent or to be converted, meaning to change one's mind, that is then to repent, or to change one's mind for the better, and to do that wholeheartedly, to change or adjust, and with loathing, looking back on one's past sins, and wanting to change. So this meant that the disciples had to behave themselves as children of God, and that, like the Lord Jesus, then they should be able to call on God as Abba, Father, as recorded in Mark 14, verse 36, where the Lord calls God, Abba, Father. The disciples, they were discussing or rather arguing who would be the first in the kingdom of God. But they had forgotten about the first necessity to enter into the kingdom. First enter into the kingdom. Because that has nothing to do with works or even a longing to enter the kingdom. To enter the kingdom is a gift from God. For those who learn to say to God, Abba, Father. Because saying that shows that they put their trust in their heavenly Father. And the Lord Jesus makes such a contact with the Father available 
and that is the only way to the Father's house and to his welcoming, his welcoming arms, if not his welcoming outstretched open arms. You see, verse 3 teaches us how to become a child of God, teaches us how to enter the kingdom, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Philip's Bible puts it this way, unless you change your whole outlook and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In verse 4, the Lord teaches that the one who stays, who remains in this way of thinking, who, who keeps having such a frame of mind toward God, that one will be the greatest in the kingdom. The one who humbles himself, who sees himself as unpretentious, unassuming, as ordinary, as lowly, that one is great in the kingdom. As it says in verse 4, Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Stanley M. Horton in the Complete Biblical Library writes, The Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day were well known for drawing attention to their virtues. And the Greeks despised humility as weakness. And some folk, some folks just do. But the Lord Jesus taught. He taught that one should not try to be great and important, but humble and modest. Let's face it. Status position and prestige are in this world gotten by putting others down or at least making others not so important but it is exactly the opposite in the kingdom of God I've got a bigger house than you or I've got a better car than you better clothes, better job keep on coming but in the kingdom one must yield one's self to others giving others the best place, the best attention, be in submission to others. There to be great, we must become the smallest, the most unimportant of all. And you see that some folk wouldn't even like it in the kingdom because of this. They wouldn't even feel at home. Instead of seeking greatness in the kingdom, the disciples should be seeking how they can serve as ordinary human beings as a child would, honored to clean the blackboard for the teacher. Verse 5, And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, the Lord tells them, receiveth me. The Living Bible puts it this way, and any of you who welcomes a little child like this because you are mine is welcoming me and caring for me. 
The Lord was saying that if they received a child in his name, that would say that they were in a proper relationship in faith in the Lord. And here's the third lesson taught. There are things and situations that are unimportant to us, but they are important to God. Like in ancient days, former days, children were considered much less important than is the case today. But the Lord taught that whoever welcomes even a little child in his name for his sake welcomes him, receives him. And the interesting twist in this is that a child that's one of the humblest ones of the Lord, those who are unimportant by world standards, is receiving the Lord Jesus himself. As we read in Matthew 25, verse 40, it says that the king will reply, Surely, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And when the Lord refers to little ones, he does not only refer to children. He refers to everyone who believes in him. This teaching was quite different as to what was done and what was popular in the heathen world where children were even used and some say were often used as human sacrifices. They suffered cruelties and neglect, even death, as we in some regrettable circumstances still see. The Lord admonished and warned the disciples not to let children suffer, nor to offend them or cause them to stumble or go astray. Verse 6, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. To offend, to be rude, to upset one of these little ones which believe in me. The word that is used here is, is from the word, is, is from the word scandalon, uh, that can be a trap, usually with some kind of a lure, an incentive, an invitation, or an enticement. Generally, it is a snare, a stumbling block, an offense, a cause for error. And generally speaking, it is something causing a wrongdoing, and especially stumbling, with the idea of tempting into sin enticing to misbehave, to disobey. As we see in Matthew 13, verse 41, the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin, and all who do evil. 
I will send my angels and they will separate, separate out of the kingdom every temptation and all who are evil. And even in Matthew 16 verse 23, the Lord told Peter, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You're a stumbling block to me. Scandalon. Stumbling block. Shall cause to stumble. And then we see a millstone. Mulas or onikos that is the turned that's turned by a donkey, a donkey mill. And Strzok Billerback comments on on this. If anyone leads astray one of these little children who believe in me, he would be better off thrown into the depth of the sea with a millstone hung round his neck. So here were two kinds of millstones in Israel. There was the small one, which was a hand mill and could be worked by a person and then there was a larger one and that one was worked by an animal such as a donkey a donkey mill the only cause both mills were made of a, a round stone disc with a hole in the middle which was then turned over another stone and the Lord was obviously speaking about the top stone of the larger mill. If anyone leads astray one of these little children who believe in me, he would be better off thrown into the depth of the sea with a millstone hung around his neck. There's not much chance of survival there. The Jews, in contrast to the Syrians, the Greeks, and the Egyptians, never practiced capital punishment by drowning, but they were familiar with the idea. And the Lord is saying that those who are the reason to stumble others into sin, and on top of that, refuse to be forgiven for it, are practically unforgivable. And in much the same situation is recorded in Matthew 11, the verses 20 through 24. Here also from the Philips Bible where the Lord denounces apathy, indifference, and where he thanks God that simple people understand his message. Where it says that in verse 20 that Jesus began reproaching the town's Horazin and Bethsaida, where most of his miracles had taken place because their hearts were unchanged. Because of that, he was reproaching the towns. And he said, if Tyre and Sidon had seen the demonstrations of God's power, the Lord says, which you have seen, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Yet I tell you this, that it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon 
the sinful cities in the day of judgment than for you. Also, or rather, the, the Gentile cities, Tyre and Sidon, and also Capernaum. Are you on your way up to heaven? I tell you, you will go hurling down among the dead. If Sodom, remember Sodom, had been had seen the miracles that you have seen, Sodom would be standing today. Yet I tell you now that it will be more tolerable and more bearable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus at this time, he said, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I thank you for hiding these things from the clever and intelligent and for showing them to mere children. Yes, I thank you, Father, that this was your will. Showing these gems, these pearls, to the humble and the meek. Verse 7, the Lord warned mankind of a suffering, a torment, a distress, a woe to come to those who would turn the world to sin, who would bring others to false beliefs and things in general that cause people to stumble and to turn away from God. But he also knew that these offenses must come because the very character of the world is disfigured by the presence of sin. Except where people are worshipping God in spirit and in truth. Then when two or three are gathered together, the Lord is there, the Holy Spirit is there. And evil cannot stay. Ephesians 6 verse 16. By taking the shield of faith. Wherewith ye shall be able to quench. All the fiery darts of the wicked. That you may be able to resist evil. And the first woe. The Lord mentions is his disappointment of those who yield to temptation. The second is a strong accusation of those who bring temptations and offenses. Verse 7, woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe. To that man by whom the offense cometh. And sometimes the reason for some offenses come from within us. And why folk try to tempt others and put obstacles in their way. But those who fall are in the same difficulty. It's often that those whose faith is destroyed. They turn away from the faith 
and then pull others with them. And to make it more personal, the Lord used the most personal example of hand, foot, eye, that critical problem of fighting one's own painful ego and to see what it was what it was like to become like a little child mastering hand foot eye that's all right when you're little verse 8 wherefore if thy hand or thy foot offend thee cut them off and cast them from thee is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire most commentators don't know what to do with this verse walford says it would be better to have a hand or foot cut off or eye plucked out than to offend one of these little ones, especially in spiritual things. So he sees it as an example. Horton writes and says that cutting off hands or feet represents separating oneself from actions and attitudes that lead to sin, regardless of how important they seem. And verse 9, and if thine eye offend thee, same thing, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It's better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. As Horton adds, hand and foot speak of actions of behavior. And in contrast, the eye is a receptor, not an outlet, and is a symbol of desire and greed. Just close your eyes to things sometimes. And he adds, believers must be willing to give up what they selfishly want to do. And the word life in the scripture, it's better for thee to enter into life speaks of the life of the coming age and be cast into hellfire the same thing the everlasting hellfire and the choices made in this life de determine our everlasting destiny sit there for a minute and think about it and then the Lord said, and again emphasized in verse 10, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. As some teach Scripture does not teach, as some do teach, but Scripture doesn't teach that each child has their own specified angel. But it sure looks like angels have a special ministry among little children. 
And believe me, they need it. And these angels mentioned, they have direct contact with God the Father. And scripture teaches that God takes the well-being and the happiness of children seriously. W.A. Criswell, in expository notes on the Gospel of Matthew, writes, God sees in the lowliest believer such value that he will take infinite pains to save him. And the passage continues from verse 10 to verse 11. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. Most manuscripts leave out verse 11, and many see this verse as inserted from Luke, Gospel according to Luke, chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man is come, he records, to seek and to save that which was lost. And whether or not it was in Matthew's original text or not, Jesus did come to seek and to save that which was lost. And take note of it, how important the Lord thinks that only one child is. Verse 12. How thank ye. If a man have a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and goes into the mountains and seeks that which is gone astray? Sitting by himself, hungry, scared. If one goes astray, the Lord does not say, Ah, oh, it's just one. Let him go. It's not important. No. He rather leaves all the 99 and the comforts of the sheep coat and goes find the one lost sheep. And when he finds the lost sheep, he's glad and he's delighted over finding that one sheep, happy and more delighted than with the newfound sheep than over all the other 99 put together that had been safe and secure in the sheep coat all along found that little one again. Bring it home. Clean it up. Give it food. Verse 13. And if so be that he finded, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety-nine which went not astray. Now, if a shepherd, a human being, a shepherd, likes this one sheep this much, how much more must God like a little child? Or you? Or me? If we truly trust him. Verse 14. 
Even so, it's not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. It's never the will of your heavenly Father that a single one of these little ones should be lost. A believer who truly wants to seek God's will and who truly has a heart and has the interest of the kingdom of God at heart should rather worry about the welfare of a child than be interested in their own importance in the kingdom. God bless you.